Hello Gateway, my name is Anmol Vadva and this is my wife Ritu Vadva. We will be reading today from Malachi chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. The Burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi I have loved you, said the Lord, yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Said the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom said, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. I read an article from the Harvard Business Review this week called Dealing with Disappointment, and it began with this anecdote. Robert didn't know what to think. How could he have misjudged the situation so badly? He felt angry, sad, and betrayed. Because of his impending retirement, Robert had carefully groomed a successor to take over his key project. The company's executives assured him that they agreed with his choice, but when push came to shove, they vetoed his candidate. Instead, they appointed someone else to take the lead, someone Robert didn't trust to continue the work that had been the capstone of his career. Robert was left kicking himself for not seeing it coming. The sense of futility and bewilderment was almost too much to bear. Now, why would an article on dealing with disappointment be featured in the Harvard Business Review? Because disappointment is unavoidable in every area of life, business, family, health, all of them are fertile ground for disappointments. With regularity, it seems, things end up not how we imagined. And there are just so many ways to end up disappointed. I mean, sometimes we get what we want only to realize that it's not really what we wanted after all. In those cases, the disappointment's kind of doubled if you think about it. Not only do we not have what we want, but where do we go from there because we thought this is what we wanted. And some of us are actually disappointed by success. One of Sigmund Freud's most famous essays was written based on several of his case studies of people who were highly successful. They got what they wanted, but they felt a profound disappointment. He believed that many of them were disappointed because they didn't think they deserved the success. And probably the most common cause of disappointment is when we don't get what we wanted, like Robert in the article. There, there are just so many ways to end up disappointed. And, and this is all complicated because so many times our desires are unconscious or, or maybe even contradictory, so we don't even know exactly why we are disappointed. Good morning. Welcome to Gateway Online, and welcome to a brand new series of conversations we're calling Not How You Imagined. We'll be working our way through the little Old Testament book of Malachi over the next six weeks, which I think Tim Bowden calls Malachi the Italian prophet. Malachi is a fairly obscure book and not really well known, but it's rich with lessons for us and for exactly where we live right now. In fact, I've come to believe that Malachi might be the first modern prophet, and you'll hear why over the coming weeks. Just now, Anmal and Rithu read for us the opening of the book, and obviously Malachi wastes no time jumping into the deep end of disappointment, does he? Let me set this up with the context a little bit. Now, the Jews living in and around Jerusalem in the sixth century BC, so this is 600 years before Jesus, were up to their necks in a field of disappointment. 
If you were here last week, you may remember that Jerusalem and the entire territory of Judah had been decimated by the Babylonian army in 586 BC. And the remaining Jews in and around Jerusalem had been forcefully migrated to the area around Babylon itself, moved lock, stock, and barrel. So what had once been the land of Israel and home to the Jews was occupied by a ragtag collection of Arab tribes and various other small ethnic groups. And after the demise of Judah, they were ruled over that whole area by Babylon. And, and Babylon was really only interested in this area for the taxes they could exact from the local populations. That was 586 BC. Then in the middle of the sixth century BC, some 60 or so years later, the Persian army overran the Babylonians and took control of their whole empire. These Persian conquerors allowed the transplanted Jews to return to their homeland if they wanted to do so, under Persian control, of course. And many of them did. So around 530 BC, an elated and spiritually energized group of Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. They were filled with visions of the great kingdom of Israel that had been ruled over by King David and his son Solomon. This was, they believed, what God had promised. This was, they believed, their inevitable future, a temple that rivaled any building in the world, an expansive kingdom which would advance the great name of Yahweh, a city where people all over the world would come and bow down, security, prosperity, advancement. And 100 years later, around 430 BC, they had none of that. Their building efforts had been opposed and threatened by the locals from day one. The city was a shell of its former self, small, incomplete wall system, poor infrastructure, and the temple was an embarrassment in light of its former glory, and frankly, an embarrassment compared to the buildings they had seen in Babylon. So around 430 BC, you can imagine the kind of cynicism that would have greeted Malachi's prophecy. An oracle, Malachi begins, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Hey, Malachi, Israel no longer exists. We're a territory of Persia and not even an attractive one at that. So from the outset, you get a sense of how this faithful remnant responded to the realities of the conditions surrounding them. Now, I say faithful because remember, these are the children of the people who believed the promise of God. They came back to the land of promise in the 6th century to rebuild. They were excited by renewing their worship and their history. So what did they believe about their present reality? Well, they didn't believe it was fair. They didn't believe God had come through for them. They had tried to be faithful and look what it got them. They wondered if trusting in God ever really paid off in the end. Why bother trusting in God if this is what you get? And they felt sorry for themselves. They felt really sorry for themselves. Now, Malachi's prophecy is written as a series of questions and answers, disputes really, between the audience and God. And Malachi supplies what the readers are thinking and God gives his answer. And the very first exchange that Anmal and Rithu read for us uh, this morning, the very first question is dripping with self-pity. Let's look at it. So God opens the discussion with verse two, I have loved you. And so often this is where God opens his discussions with us, right? Not, you're so awful, you're not anything like how I imagined you would turn out. This is what we're sometimes thinking. You're a real disappointment. Why can't you get it right? I mean, I mean what have you done? This is sometimes how we think about ourselves, but that's not God's perspective. I have loved you, God begins. 
And notice the perfect tense there, not I love you. Of course, that's true. And it's included in what he says, but he says more. I have loved you. I have a history with you of loving you over time through good parts and bad. And then their response reveals the self-pity that was oozing out of every pore. How have you loved us? This doesn't look like love. Look at us. Look at our circumstances. And God's response is pretty incredible, even in this short little section. In three short paragraphs, God gives us two big picture principles. Now, if you'll indulge me this morning, I'm going to cover both, but I think it will be worth it. First of all, God offers a great doctrinal truth. And secondly, a titanic promise. Now, when I say doctrinal truth, I mean that God gives us a great idea that shapes how we think about him and about reality. The doctrinal truth is terrifying, honestly, and humbling. God's response shows us his sovereign love of us, including his sovereign choice of us. That's the doctrinal truth. And then the Titanic promise. Well, this part speaks powerfully to the moment we find ourselves in as a society right now, I think. God promises that justice will eventually be served. All right, first of all, the doctrinal truth. How have you loved us, they ask. And God responded by reminding them of their ancient history and the story of Esau and Jacob. Remember that weird stuff? Well, if you know the book of Genesis, then you may remember Esau and Jacob. They were fraternal twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, according to ancient Near Eastern tradition, the older twin Esau should have inherited the family name and legacy. But in their case, Jacob ended up tricking both his brother and his father, and he, Jacob, inherited all that Esau should have inherited. According to the biblical tradition, and this is why Malachi used the story, according to the biblical tradition, this happened because of God's choice of Jacob. God chose Jacob to be the son of promise. It wasn't based on Jacob's deserving. It wasn't based on Jacob's efforts as a son. It wasn't even based on Jacob's trickery. It was based on God's choice of Jacob. Or, as Malachi, the Italian prophet, put it, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Now, now, please understand that Esau as an individual led a very blessed life, both with riches and family. In many ways, he had a much easier life than Jacob. But Jacob carried with him the special promise of God, passed down to him through his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. In fact, in the middle of his life, Jacob got the nickname Israel. That's how his children and descendants became known as the sons of Israel and then Israel for short. And it was Jacob's descendants who would eventually come to know God as Yahweh, who would worship the true God, who would occupy the land and build the first representation of God's kingdom. All of this happened because God chose Jacob and not Esau. Verse three in our passage. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. In other words, this is God's world, not Israel's, not ours. We get to live in it, not only so, but we get to be recipients of God's special care, his love, and for no other reason than simply because he loves us. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything for it. It's not because of our curiosity or our spiritual sensitivity. It's not because of our upbringing or our goodness. He loves us because he loves us. His world, his choice. Wait, Ed, 
Didn't Jacob trick his father Isaac and his brother Esau? Isn't that how he got the family name and legacy? Yes and no, not really. It all happened because God loved Jacob. God chose Jacob. So wait, Ed, take that to its logical conclusion. If you do, you'd be saying that I didn't choose God. He chose me. Are you telling me that? No, no, I'm not telling you that. God is telling you that. In fact, in John 15, 16, Jesus directly told his disciples and us, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. So then, Ed, do my choices not matter? It's all just God's doing? No, I'm definitely not saying that, and neither does God. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that God comforts us, gives directions to us, commands us, as if our choices matter very, very much. Okay, pastor boy, well, if he's sovereign, and, and if his love really is sovereign, then explain what difference my choices make. What does it matter what Jacob did or didn't do? What difference did it make how the Jews in 430 BC responded or didn't respond? What does it matter what I choose? Explain how that works. And I can't explain it. <laughs> Not fully. I can't even get started explaining it in the time we have this morning. I've heard various helpful explanations over the years, but none of them are fully satisfying. And that's the reason, honestly, I hardly ever talk about this great doctrinal idea. Over my whole ministry life, I've mostly reserved this idea for private conversations or small group settings, and mostly with people who are pretty secure in their faith. Because people respond to this idea often with confusion and sometimes with concern, and I get it. As I said, this is, this is kind of a terrifying truth. If this is true, it requires, I'm not exaggerating, it requires an adjustment in the way we look at reality. I mean, our entire view of reality at its core is organized around our choices. That's our obvious and everyday reality. Do this or do that, and everything else follows from that, from those choices. And if that's not exactly how it works, well, you can see how confusing that could be. But I realized something by looking at this passage. Here in this passage, God used this truth as a reminder and a gentle rebuke for people who were barely hanging on. These folks weren't secure in their faith, anything but. And these aren't sweet words of love from a gentle father. No, in effect, God begins his response to Mal through Malachi by saying, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Things are tough, yes but this is my party. It always has been, and I invited you to it. I invited you. You're my special guest, and what you need in this party is a connection to me, and you have it. You need to rely on my character and use my name, and you can. You don't need your circumstances to change. Remember, this is my party, not yours, and whatever conditions you imagine for the party, that's immaterial. The great doctrinal idea, in my view, the unmistakable doctrinal idea, which God inserts into a discussion about their disappointment, is his awesome sovereign love. They're not responsible for it. They don't deserve it. They also can't shake it. It's undisturbed, unchanged by their pettiness. It is relentless. But there's more. In his response, God also gives them a titanic promise. He promises that justice will be served. Justice will be served. 
Think of the power of that promise for these downtrodden Jews if, and us. If they could trust it, they could let go of their animosity. They could let go of their desire to make them pay. They could let go of their need to be on top one day and we'll show them. No, justice is coming. And that's also a pretty incredible word for the circumstances in which we find ourselves as Americans right now. Justice is coming. It will be served. Let me explain how we get that from this passage. First of all, you should know that the descendants of Esau were called Edomites. Do you see that in the passage? And they were perennial enemies of the Israelites. In fact, Numbers 20 and 1 Kings 11 in the Old Testament both include references to the hatred between the two peoples. And these passages were written hundreds of years apart. The prophet Obadiah, nearly a contemporary with, of Malachi, told us that the Edomites had helped the Babylonians destroy Judah. At one point, the Edomites cut off their escape and handed them over to the Babylonians as captives. And according to another historical source, it was the Edomites who actually burned the temple. I mean, there was a lot of reason for animosity. So what happened to these Edomites? Well, around the same time as Jerusalem's destruction, the cities of Edom were also destroyed by the Babylonians. Then at some point, some later point, the Edomites returned to their land, perhaps under the same kind of conditions as the Jews did, the Persians allowing them. But the returning Edomites were driven away from their original homeland by local Arabs. So they began taking over parts of what had been southern Judah. They were actually among the peoples who hassled the returning Jewish exiles. They were part of the reason why, for decades, the returning Jews were only able to occupy Jerusalem itself and its immediate suburbs and not the rest of Judah. Think about how this added insult to injury for the Jews. This same group of Edomites, yet again, were a thorn in their side. So how have you loved us, God? Look at the Edomites. They're still preventing us from becoming a great nation, still torturing us, and you do nothing, nothing. There's no such thing as justice. We're going to hear that actual complaint literally from Malachi's audience at the end of chapter 2. So, verse 4. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people under the wrath of the Lord. And after they return from exile... Edom was never again a national entity. All of their attempts to reestablish a national presence, and there were many, were frustrated. And they ultimately ceased to exist as a political or ethnic group. Justice is coming. It will be served. Bible scholar Christopher Wright tells a moving story about a friend of his from India who was led to Christ by reading the Old Testament. Uh, at the time, this friend taught engineering at a local university, but, but he had grown up among the despised community in his village. And his whole family had suffered greatly at the hands of high-class, high-caste Hindus in their village. All kinds of harassment, violence, and injustice. He'd grown up wanting revenge against his oppressors. And so he worked very hard at school to get into university so he could get a job with some influence and power and then turn the tables on his enemies. And I want you to listen to uh, Dr. Wright tell the story. Dr. Wright says this, uh, that the day he arrived at university, he found a Bible translated into Telugu in his room. Telugu was his first language. He had never read the Bible, though he knew that it was the Christian's holy book. 
He opened it at random and started reading the story of Naboth and Ahab in 1 Kings 21. It's the story of the unjust king Ahab who uses his power to steal land from Naboth, an ordinary farmer. The story had so many familiar elements. This was my story, his friend said. His family also had experienced theft of land, false accusations, murders, and the brutality of the powerful against the ordinary people. But then he read on and was amazed to read about another man called Elijah, who in the name of some God of the Bible denounced King Ahab and said that he would be judged and punished by this God. This was astounding, my friend said. My friend had millions of gods within Hinduism to choose from, but he had never heard of such a God as this. Here was a God who took the side of the suffering ones and condemned the government and the powerful for their wicked deeds. I never knew such a God existed, were his exact words to me, Dr. Wright says, which I have never forgotten. At this, the man continued to read the Bible. He learned about Jesus, his life and death and resurrection. He also learned about the need to forgive. But his road to conversion started by meeting the God who is just and who takes the side of the oppressed. It's so fascinating to me that God responded to the self-pity of these Jews by reminding them of his awesome sovereign love and reminding them that justice is coming. Now, let me quickly say four things about justice here, quickly. This is, this is not a conversation about justice. This is a conversation really about how we manage our disappointment, but God introduces the idea of justice into that conversation. So let's talk about it for a minute. Much of what the Bible says about justice can be summarized in four points. First point. Justice is always on the side of the oppressed and downtrodden, just as our Indian friend discovered. Isaiah 1.17 says this, Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Similarly, Proverbs 19.7, Deuteronomy 16.19, and Deuteronomy 24.17 and 19, Psalm 140.12, and Isaiah 10.12, Jeremiah 5, 28 and Ezekiel 22, 29 all point to the same truth. And that's just to mention a few. There are many, many more passages that address the same theme. Justice is always on the side of the poor and the oppressed. Now, that doesn't mean that poor or oppressed individuals never do anything wrong. The fact that justice is on the side of the poor and oppressed simply means that God will eventually address those conditions and make them right. And we should be concerned about those conditions as well. Secondly, our participation in justice is never about vengeance or payback. In Deuteronomy 32, 35, it says this, uh, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, the Lord says. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near. God is the one who evens the scales. He is the one who pays back for wrongs done. We should never do that work. Our participation in justice is never about vengeance. I think this is because we simply can't handle that job. There's almost always within us some hint of, I'll show them, and that pollutes the work of justice. In fact, self-pity is the perfect breeding ground for that sentiment. So we shouldn't be surprised that for every heroic Nelson Mandela in history, there are a thousand Fidel Castros and Robespierre who are people, once they throw off the chains of oppression, they then take up those chains to oppress their oppressors with even more severity than they were oppressed themselves. That's not justice. 
Our participation in justice is never about vengeance. Third thing the Bible tells us about justice, justice reveals the greatness of God. Justice reveals the greatness of God. I think because he alone can bring it about. You know, when I look at Rembrandt's painting, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, I don't think, wow, that's an amazing boat. I think, wow, how did Rembrandt paint that? Justice reveals the greatness of God. Now, I know that sounds like one of those throwaway preacher points, but it's not. Look, true justice doesn't come through education or legislation or protest. Justice will come when God moves. I'm not saying we should never pass laws. Of course we should. I'm not saying we should never protest. There are times when we should. But true justice will come about when God brings it about. Justice reveals the greatness of God. That's why Malachi ends this section in verse 5 by saying, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Uh, the fourth thing we learn about justice from the Bible is the truth that God hints at here. And in our passage, justice is coming. It will be done. The Edomites don't get a pass. No one does. Justice will be done. God will bring it about. I read a great note from uh, a pastor named Mark Maynell this week, and he, he talked about the atrocities that his good friend Emma had witnessed in the Democratic Republic of Congo. President Mobutu reigned as the dictator and president of the Democratic Republic of Congo from 1965 to 1997. But after global political changes, Mobutu was forced out of power and the country collapsed and descended into conflict and chaos. And at that point, Emma and his family fled on foot. Many weeks after fleeing, they arrived in Uganda as refugees with nothing. After a few months of a miserable existence, Emma walked past a local seminary and sensed that the Lord was calling him to ministry. The family had been living in one room without water or electricity. They had enough to pay for one meal every two days. Pastor Maynell said that one evening they met in the seminary's tiny library and started talking. And as Emma opened his heart and shared the story of the violence and injustice he'd witnessed, he started to openly weep, despite the fact that African men never cry in public. Then Emma said uh, these sobering words. You know, Mark, I can never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God. Because I will never get justice in this world, but I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done. Then Maynell made this comment that really struck me. We in the West often recoil from God's justice for a very simple reason. We've hardly had to suffer true injustice. Most people around the globe recognize that God's justice is praiseworthy and great. Of course, his mercy and redemption are even greater, but we need his perfect justice as well. It shows us how great he really is. God reminds these Jews, justice is coming. It will be served and it will show us how great God is. So how do we handle it when our lives are not how we imagined they would be? Well, we learn from this passage that one coping strategy is obviously to wallow in self-pity. It's a paralyzing strategy, but it's one we often employ. But there is an alternative. We can trust God. We can believe that He is in charge. We can believe that He loves us and that His love is relentless and unshakable. And we can trust that all things will be made right 
justice will be served. And we can enjoy the party to which we've been invited as best we can. And look, if we know Jesus, we of all people should know this, all of this. We should know that God is sovereign and that his love has the final word. We should know that justice will be accomplished. Our God overcame the greatest trial and the greatest injustice imaginable, the death of his perfectly innocent son. And remember this, listen, he didn't just accomplish his purposes in spite of the circumstances. No, God showed us the perfect demonstration of his awesome sovereign love and he accomplished the full measure of justice because of those terrible circumstances. It was through the awful death of the son that God's love and justice could be displayed. Could it be that our circumstances are the next theater in which God is displaying his love and his justice? I have loved you, says the Lord. And if you know Jesus, you've seen it. Let's pray. Father, today we submit to your love and we celebrate your justice. I want to ask, Lord, especially today that you'll take this, you know, kind of big picture introduction to our grapplings and our angst that you'll take that and make it real apply it to us that we will see when faced with the for some of us the drama of injustice in our world we will see that justice is coming and that you're going to bring it about and, and we can lean into that with trust and for others of us lord we'll, we'll, all of us that will see our lives in this larger context it's your world it's your party and we've been invited simply because you love us. And that love is unshakable and relentless. We thank you. Would you, would you apply, would you break up in our chests and apply that to our hearts and our lives this week? In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.